0: For those of you that are just getting here, there's still some food, and you're more than welcome to come up anytime you want to get food. Yeah, Um, but not right now because we're going to pray. Okay. (laughs) Look at you. (laughs) God, thanks for uh, laughter among friends. We thank you for food. Uh, Most of all, God, we thank you for your word and what it reveals to us about you. We pray that you would bless our efforts as we try to study it. Our goal is to know you more deeply, Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen.
1: Well, we are really glad that you are here. This is encouraging to see so many people here for this class. When we originally, David and I originally talked about putting this together, we thought maybe 20 or 25 people will come, and obviously there's uh, a lot more than that, so we're really excited about that. We're glad for that. It's, it's refreshing that people are interested in uh, classes that have the word Bible in the title and not just sex or drugs or something like that. You know, so uh, I want to give you an overview of the next four weeks. Um, one, of Frankly, one of the challenges that David and I had was keeping this down to four weeks, but we wanted to do that um, for a number of reasons. We, we could probably talk about this f- for a lot longer than that, but here's the evening, evening one. I'm going to kind of introduce everything, um, talk about some basic tools, and talk about <clears throat> um, these big Uh, frightening words like exegesis and hermeneutics. And so we're going to work through a lot of that stuff. Okay, so already Elizabeth is laughing. Um, You know the whole debate about the seminary thing, right? I go to Fuller and he, or I I went to Fuller and I teach at Fuller and he went to Phoenix and Phoenix thinks Fuller is way too liberal and Fuller thinks that um, Phoenix is disqualified from teaching anything about the Bible just because. Um, anyway, somebody once said that the problem with Fuller is that they believe in an extra Jesus because we talk about exegesis all the time, that there's more than one Jesus. So anyway, so that's kind of what we'll do um, the first night. Um, the second night, we'll get into just some background about the Bible, Bible facts. And, and uh, some of you are going to be like, so what, are you preparing us for uh, a Jeopardy show or what? But all of this is going to build on it so that at the end, Uh, you'll have this fully comprehensive package of understanding uh, how as a non-seminary, non-pastor person, you can approach the Bible with great confidence and know exactly what you're talking about. And it's not that difficult. It just looks a little bit difficult. So we're going to give you all these Bible facts. We're going to talk a lot about the Bible. And then um, we're going to talk about the idea that as you approach any text, uh, the, the most basic and most helpful thing you can do is observe the text as you read it and then interpret the text and then go back and apply. So you observe and then go back and interpret and then go back and apply and we'll talk about what all that means. On the third night, we'll talk about the different genres in the Bible and the context that's important and understanding words. We won't do word studies, but just understanding, understanding literary techniques and things like that. And then we'll actually do a couple of exercises that night probably on the New Testament book of Philippians and the Old Testament book of Amos where we won't necessarily read Philippians or Amos, but instead we'll do background uh, work on Philippians and Amos that we believe is very, very helpful in, again, approaching a biblical book and understanding how to interpret it and read it for all all that it's worth. One of the reasons I'm so passionate about this is that when I first became a Christian, I became a Christian in a context um, uh, of, a, of a very large, very strongly biblically based church um, that unfortunately had the assumption that if you were in their church, you, you knew everything that you needed to know about the Bible. And they they were really good at telling people about Jesus, but they weren't very good at understanding that maybe somebody like me, when I first came to Jesus at the age of 27, I didn't know the first thing about the Bible. I couldn't even spell Bible. I mean, it was... And so they would say things like, turn in your Bible to Ephesians. And I'm like, what is an Ephesian? Is it a skin disease? And where is it? Why was it written? Who wrote it? Who who did they write? The, The assumption was you just automatically knew. And, and frankly, I got really frustrated with Bible study and, and got turned off from reading the Bible. I was happy with Jesus, but I was like, I'm not going to read your word, though, because it makes no sense and nobody seems to want to help me. And then one day somebody said, I need you to go to this new Bible study with me. This, this guy named Tom Schrader is teaching the Bible study. And I heard him say, I need you to go to this Bible study with me. And I said, I've had enough of Bible study. Get away from me. I don't want to go. He asked me six straight weeks. Finally, he said, I'll tell you what. If you go with me to this Bible study, this guy's this good. If you go with me to this Bible study um, and you don't like it, I'll take you to Durant's for lunch the next week. I'll do anything for a free lunch at Durant's. And so I said, I'm in. I'll go. And I went. <clears throat> and Schrader opened up to Daniel, one of the most difficult books in the Bible to understand. And he taught it in such a way... He He understood that there were going to be people in the audience that didn't understand who Daniel was, when it was written, all that stuff. And he gave all that background. Suddenly, he just opened up this whole new world to me. And I became a freak about the Bible. Just one person who said, I'm going to help you with this and that's all it took. And so that's why I have a passion for this. David has the same passion, maybe for different reasons. He's a little bit smarter than me. He did go to Phoenix Seminary, but he'll, he'll tell you later why he does. But this is, so one of those things that, that Tom helped me understand is that before you approach a book, um, it's good to know about the book in a Bible. So let's study about Daniel a little bit first. 15 or 20 minutes, that's it. And you'll have this comprehensive understanding of Daniel. Now you can read it and you're going, oh, now I get it. Oh, now I get it. Okay. So that will be evening three. And then um, the last evening, we're going to talk about literary devices and figures of speech going a little bit more specific. And then we're going to actually read through two books of the Bible. Just read through it out loud. And very simply just point out little things along the way. But, but it, it, it just kind of go, going quickly, but pointing out little things to help you understand how you can read through an entire book in 15 or 20 or 25 minutes of the Bible and, and get so much out of it. One of the challenges in church is that we usually give you the Bible in these tiny little what, what are known as pericopes or just t- tiny little excerpts of text and you never get the full um, context of what's going on. Uh, David Van Slyke and I were having a conversation one night and I brought it up during the Romans series a couple of times. It takes you about 30 minutes to sit down and read Romans from Romans 1-1 through Romans 16, whatever it is, 27 or whatever, the end, of, the end of Romans. It takes you about 30 minutes to do it. And yet nobody, we hardly ever do anything like that. And yet when Romans was originally written, that was, that was the way it was supposed to be written. Do, do, you think that, do you think that the church in Rome got the letter from Paul and they got up there on Sunday morning or maybe Saturday at that time, but they got up at Sunday morning church and they said, we got this letter from Paul. We're just going to read you the first two sentences and then, and nothing, and you're going to have to come back for two years and, and hear, and hear, in, in order to hear the whole letter. No, 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 no. They, they, they read the whole thing straight through and then they passed it around and they read it through again and they read it through again. That's really the way this is designed to be read. Um, I, we're going through the Gospel of Mark now. So, in the last four or five months, I've probably sat down and, at one sitting, uh, read through the Gospel of Mark six different times. Because you see themes emerge that you would never see uh, as as we're going through it. Uh, a week from this Sunday, I'm going to be looking at Mark chapter one, verses twenty-one through thirty-four, and we're going to talk about unclean spirits and demons, which are essentially the same thing. And if you just look at those. 15 verses, 21 through 34, um, or is that 14? Anyway, uh, if you just look at those verses, you, you, may not be, you may not realize there's a tremendously powerful theme throughout the gospel of Mark of demons and unclean spirits. And we're going to have to talk about that. We can't just race by that and hope it never comes up again. We're actually going to have to talk about that because it's a major, major theme in the Gospel of Mark. And so one of the ways that you see that is by reading the entire Gospel in one sitting and and being able to see that emerge. So... uh, we're going to read through Philippians, and then David's trying to figure out which Old Testament book we're going to read through. I'm going to do Philippians. He's going to do the Old Testament book. He's been leaning towards Leviticus. I've been begging him not to do that. Uh, we're we're hoping we're hoping for maybe Jonah or um, Amos, one of the one of the minor prophets. We thought would be really good. Okay. Now you have blank qu- um, you have a lot of note paper there that we passed out. One of the things that we would like you to do um, is. Uh, Write down questions that you don't necessarily want to ask out loud and give them to us at the end of every night. And David and I are going to go through them. And we're trying to...
0: Uh, uh, um, for the first night, um, write down the like, number one question you have about the Bible. You're like, this, this is, if there's one thing that's on my mind the most, this is the thing I want to figure out. Um, and don't put your name on it. Just fold it up, leave it in the center, and we'll take it. And we'll, we'll, I don't know if we'll address all of them, but we'll see a theme emerge, and we'll probably right. address some of the main ones. Right,
1: right. Um, I, I wrote at the top of my notes uh, two things that we talked about over and over and over as we prepared for this. We want this study to be fluid and accessible. In other words, we're not, we, we kind of have a script, but we're hoping that there's going to be discussion and people are going to be willing to. To kind of jump in, and so there we want it. We want it to be fluid and accessible. So you can write questions down, but also you can certainly ask as we go along. I'm going to do a lot of stuff on the whiteboard. Maybe David will too. It's just helpful to do those kinds of things. And ultimately, we want to. uh, We just help. We're just hoping that this will end up being a great resource for you. So, Emil Caliet, who is a professor of theology at Princeton Theological Seminary. Uh, wrote a book titled, The Book That Understands Me. What, what book was he talking about? The Bible. Yeah, that's a great description of what the Bible is. Um, w- we often um, read the Bible to see what we can get out of it rather than reading the Bible to see us in it. And that's one of the best things that we can do because we're all over in this Bible. We are all over in this Bible. Old Testament characters, prophets, prophets, New Testament characters, all the themes, all the talk about uh, human nature, sin nature, all of that stuff, and certainly our redemption. And so that's really, really um, helpful. Um, Yet, even though this book is a book that understands me, so many of us struggle to read it. So let me ask this question, see what your answers might be if you're willing to answer out loud. Why do we struggle to read the Bible? What are some of the challenges or obstacles that we have with reading it? Language, like meaning, are you reading in the original Greek? Is that what's going on, Julie? <laughs> okay. All right. So anyway, go ahead. Sorry. What was it? The language, how it's. Okay. All right. Gina. Because we're all using different translations. Yeah. Challenging because sometimes it makes a difference. Okay. What What are other reasons? For me, it's when you've read it so many times, you don't feel like you know everything, but sometimes it's rote. It, becomes rote. it becomes rote. What Okay, that's 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 true, and I can you know sometimes you're reading something and you've read it twenty times, and now all of a sudden. Bam, the Holy Spirit opens up something new to you about it. But what about people who struggle to just open it? They, they've struggled to open it up and just read it and get it and understand. What are some of those struggles? Yeah. Right, so not understanding why something is happening and why de- certain details are important or wh- what means something significant and what maybe is isn't as significant just by reading it because we're so far removed from that context. We're going to talk a lot about context. That's a big deal. Yeah, Harrison. It's also big. big. Yeah, yeah. So one of the the things that David will talk about when he talks about Bible facts is that um, the Bible was written over the course of 1,500 years. Okay? And it's a collection of 66 books and more than 40 authors. So that's pretty intimidating, isn't it? And, and yet it all tells this narrative story of the gospel. And yet, th- isn't that intimidating though? Over 1500 years, all these different uh, social contexts, historical contexts, language and ethnic contexts, um, all of that stuff. You're right. It's really helpful to know the background of, of this stuff. Here's a, here's a little example if you're reading in the Old Testament book of Esther, which was one, one of my favorite books, I wish we'd teach it here sometime. I've been pushing Luke for that. But um, you don't get this in the text. It's helpful to know the history Of the Persian Empire though if you know the history of the Persian Empire you might be able you you would probably understand this between the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 four years pass, but there's no indication of that in the biblical text but we know historically that four years go by between the end of chapter 1 of Esther and the beginning of chapter 2 of Esther and that's a really important historical detail to know in order to understand the story of Esther and what God is doing in the midst of that story so background is really, really important. What else is intimidating? Yes? Well, it doesn't follow order. It's right. Right. It doesn't really follow a chronological, necessarily, order. Yeah. There's some chronological order in it, but there's other places it's not. Some, are, some areas of the Bible are organized according to literary genre. Others are organized according to uh, chronology. Uh, here, here you go. How are the letters uh, in the New Testament organized? Anybody know? Okay, not not according to genre, uh, they, they are they do come after the gospels in that re- yes, that's tr- and acts, they come after the gospel and acts, but you're right. They they are organized first of all they say author Paul and then the way they're organized um, Paul wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. The way those are organized is by length. Okay, does is that, is that, is that help you understand what it's saying? No, because suddenly you're reading the first letter is Romans, which is the longest one, but it's not the first one written. The first one that Paul wrote was what? Galatians or 1 Thessalonians, depending on which scholar you believe. And it was written t- at least 10 years earlier than Romans. And so Romans has a much more um, sophisticated writing style than Galatians does. Okay? Some scholars even call Galatians Romans Jr. It's saying the same thing, but it's not saying it in as cleaned up a way. Okay? Not that the theology is different or wrong. It's just he, he, he hadn't developed his writing style that much by the time he uh, wrote um, Galatians. So all of those reasons adds a layer of complexity um, to this amazing document. Um, so it's a collection of genres and the organization of it is something that is confusing and we're, most of us are not used to it. Most of us just want to pick up a John Grisham novel and be able to read that and we want to be able to read the Bible in the same way and we really can't. So we're going to spend some time trying to figure that out. Uh, Let me tell you right out of the gate, uh, reading the Bible and understanding it well is a combination of actually three things. There is a science... There is a science to biblical understanding and interpretation. That's why we have all these resources and tools and commentaries and and now you can go on the internet and do all of this stuff. There is a science to it. There's there's a science to literature. There's a science to uh, textual criticism. There's a science to rhetoric. There is a science. But there's also, in a very large way, there's an art to it as well. And so, those of you that are type A scientists and like things organized and neat and clean, this appeals to you, but then we say it's art and you're like, ah. But you artists are like, yeah, it's art, it's art, it's cool, okay. And you see the beauty of it and all that stuff, but you really don't care about what Bruce Metzger says about textual criticism. But then here's the most important part. It's also supernatural. Okay? If you're trying to read and interpret Shakespeare, it's really not a supernatural event in your life. With the Bible, it is. Because the Holy Spirit is guiding and illuminating and opening doors for you. 1 okay? uh, Corinthians uh, 1 and 2 tells us that um, if we, e- even without any of these other tools, if you have the Holy Spirit and you're reading the Bible and somebody else doesn't, you're going to have an advantage over them because the Holy Spirit is, is opening these things to you. And you'd be surprised how often you right about something just being guided by the Holy Spirit. It's pretty amazing. Once I became a Christian and started to understand how the Holy Spirit helped guide me, that was also a big help in my Bible reading as well. So praying and relying on the Holy Spirit before and during the reading of it. So that's really important. Um, let me read to you, I um, love this, Psalm um, 19. Psalm in the, where, where'd David go? Psalm in the Old Testament? Is that? Okay. <laughs> okay. You can't participate sitting back there. Not good. All right, so here we go. Uh, Psalm 19, verses 9 through 11. Here's what the um, psalmist says. David uh, says, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring the forever, The rules of the Lord are true. Now that word that's translated rules there is one of eight different Hebrew words that we have that refer to God's law, God's um, statutes, God's guidelines, God's rules. There's eight different Hebrew words. The Hebrew language is very poetic, very beautiful. And so there's a lot of different words that are used to describe one thing, God's word. His word, the Bible. So David says it here, the rules of the Lord are true. God's law is true. God's word is true. So he's talking about God's word now. It's true and righteous altogether. It's more to be desired than gold. We, we, we should desire God's word more than gold, even much fine gold. And it's sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Now, honey was a big deal 3,000 years ago when when um, David wrote this. It, that was um, more than today, much more than today. It was a staple item of food and it was an absolute treat to have honey. So David compares God's word to honey. That was a big deal. That would be like us <clears throat> comparing God's word to Krispy Kreme donuts. That's, that would be kind of the, the parallel here, okay? I need something better than that, I suppose, than Krispy Kreme donuts. And then, it's, and then he says... Um, Moreover, by them, by God's word is your servant warned, in keeping, the, in keeping them, there is great reward. So this is the high esteem that David and God has for God's word. And so David Massey is passing out these uh, little um, things of honey. You don't have to eat them now, you can if you want. but we want you to take these to be reminded that God's word is like honey on the tongue, OK? All right? Now, here's the next thing I want to talk about that's really important. We also want to approach, here's one of the big challenges. We also want to approach the Bible to get through it. We want to approach a book to get through it. Oh, I got to read Ephesians today, I got to get through it. And, and, and that's kind of the way we approach novels and, and journal articles and stuff for work, right? Somebody, your boss hands you an essay that you have to read. I just got to get through it, okay? And so there's a difference between reading what we would call informationally. We read, 99% of the stuff we read, we read informationally. We're just going to get through it. We just, just I got to get to the end. Getting to the end is more important than comprehending anything that I'm reading, okay? But the way we need to read the Bible is formationally. So, um, there's a, sorry David, there's a movie called, um, it was a Tom Cruise movie and he goes to Japan and Samurai right? Samu- what was it? Last samurai. Last samurai. Okay, so he goes there and he, and he gets captured by the guy and they're out in the garden talking and, and the, the guy that, that captures him, the king or whatever is, um, he's looking at some flowers and he says, you know, uh, this flower is the most beautiful flower in the world. You could spend your entire life looking for the perfect example of this flower and it would not be a wasted life, okay? You understand what he's saying? That, that, that the process of something can be just as important as the ends, okay? The means are just as important as the ends. We want to read the Bible formationally. Um, people get really nervous if they sit down and they're, they're I'm going I'm to read some Proverbs today. And they read two Proverbs and they spend 20 minutes reading them. I didn't get anything done. That's not true. If you're contemplating just two Proverbs, two verses in Proverbs for 20 minutes, you're probably getting more done than reading James in 20, all of James in 20 minutes. Because you're reading it formationally. You're getting the word in you by doing that. I'm not saying that every time you sit down to read the Bible, it's going to take you twenty minutes to read two verses. That's not what I'm saying. But there is it is not wasted time if it takes you twenty minutes to read two verses. I once spent in the opposite of this idea of reading a, an entire book of the Bible straight through. I once at my last church, I spent eight weeks preaching on two verses Romans twelve one and two eight weeks. The elders, when I presented them the idea, the elders of the church said there's you can 't do it there's no way you can possibly do it and I said, "Oh yeah, you have no idea how rich and deep those two verses are right it 's a translate it's the it's the transformation uh, from doctrine into application in the book of Romans. And we spent eight weeks on it. And afterwards they said, okay, you're right. You, you, you f- somehow found content, you know. And we were preaching 35, 40 minutes there too. That's how rich and deep God's word is. So it's not wasted time to spend that kind of time on it, okay? Uh, so we want, to, uh, we want to ask you to, to slow down. And and be okay with it slowing down. Um, I knew I knew a pastor once who was way more concerned about making sure that he read X amount of books and X amount of Bible every day, than really knowing what he had read. All he wanted to do was just to be able to say, "I got through that and I was done." Anybody ever see the uh, movie um, When Harry Met Sally? Okay. Do you remember what Billy Crystal did every time he started a new book? He would go back to the end and look at the end and he would look at how many pages there are and read the last page because that's really all that he was... He'd go back and read the book really fast, but he just wanted to know how far he had to go and and what was going to happen. That's all he cared about. You don't read the Bible that way. Okay, It's not how we read it. So we read it for formation, not information. Now, Some basic tools. Here's another uh, challenge or intimidation factor that we run into. So people come into my office or any pastor's office and um, we're book nuts and all that stuff. And one of the reasons we're book nuts is because we went to seminary and they made us buy all these books And so now we have to put them on display for all of you so that you're impressed, okay? And you need to understand that at least this is a scientifically known fact. Research has confirmed this for hundreds of years. At least half the books in a um, pastor's library have never been opened or read, okay? So you just need to know that. They're just there for display, okay? Anyway, you walk in and you see all these books, and one of the things that you're going to think, most people think is, well, how could I ever read the Bible and understand it the way he might? Um, look at all the stuff he has. I, don't, I, I, I could never have this much in terms of tools and, and, and helps. I, I wouldn't have the money, I don't have the time to accumulate it. Well, that's not true. Th- there's essentially three basic things that you if you had these three things, you would assen- and then I 'm going to give you three websites too. If you had these three things and these three websites, you 've got about 97 percent of what you really need to be able to actually get up and preach on Sunday morning. I'm serious, okay? So I want to show you a little video. This is a 40-second video from the movie Grand Torino that'll, that'll help you understand maybe. I don't know. I hope you can hear it. This is my thing. I like to show videos. I'm sorry. Clint Eastwood. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I love that clip. the The minute I saw that, the minute I saw that in Gran Torino, the minute I saw that, I thought, "That's exactly true about also understanding the Bible." Okay, if you only it's better with the Bible. If you have WD forty, vice grips, and duct tape, or the equivalent of that in biblical helps, you're going to be able to do ninety five percent of what a pastor does, essentially. And so, here are those three things. Here's the first thing, a really good study Bible. Okay, now Redemption is an ESV translation church. We'll talk about translation later, but we do the ESV, the English Standard Version. And the English Standard Version is a very good translation and it has a wonderful edition that is a study, they have three or four different editions of the ESV um, the text of the Bible is all the same, but what the Bible does for you is different. The study Bible is terrific. How ma- does anybody have an ESV study Bible? Okay. Now, you know, it comes like this in the, the hard copy cover, which is 35 or $40. I have a friend who bought me the leather one, and I, know, I happen to know uh, that was an $80 gift that he gave me, and that leather uh, study Bible is absolutely amazing. Um, it's so wonderful, I'd never use it. I'd, it's like your good China, you know, you don't, I'm kidding. I use it all the time, but um, it, it, it's really terrific. And so I highly recommend this. So this is, this is your WD-40. And the reason it's important that it's a study Bible is because in the study Bible, you have um, uh, all these um, explanations of what's going on in the Bible and how to use it, first of all, it gives you a lot of good history. And then at the beginning of each biblical book, so um, 66 different times in here, there's an essay at the beginning called An Introduction into Genesis, An Introduction into uh, Exodus, An Introduction into Leviticus, and it gives you all of the background material that says who wrote it, when did they write it, who were who they writing it to, why did they write it, what was the purpose of writing it, what are the major biblical themes or, or theological themes in the book, and it gives you all of that in a very short, easy-to-digest, pedestrian essay that anybody in this room could read and understand and then I, i'm t- it it has maps I, you know i i am fascinated by how few people care about where any of these places are that you're reading about and the map is spent fant- oh it just opens up a whole new world for you the maps are awesome you need the maps and you should study the maps I walked through, uh, at PVCC, I walked through um, the book of Acts uh, during a Wednesday night Bible study. took us um, nine months. We went through the book of Acts, and I had this huge map of all of Paul's missionary journeys up there, and I used that practically every week to point out what was going on and where everybody was, and it just kind of brings it to life, okay? It's the next best thing to actually getting on a plane and going there, Okay. Is, is, is doing the map. So uh, that's, that's the first thing is the, um, the ESV study Bible or w- whatever uh, version of the Bible that you happen to use. I also just have, the pl- this is my preaching Bible, the plain old black leather ESV, no study helps in here at all. It's just the text, okay? Anyway, so there's your WD-40. Here's the second thing. A, a very good one volume commentary on the Bible. Yes, this one is it's open to mark, notice. This one is about 1,500 pages. Um, some commentary series, there's 66, or some commentary series, there's a 100 books for all of the Bible. OK? They're very, very detailed. There's also like this, the New Bible Commentary, edited by, this probably means nothing to most of you, but it would mean a lot to David and I. This was edited by Gordon Wenham, J.A. Mottier, D.A. Carson, and R.T. France. Those guys are like um, the NBA all-stars of biblical interpretation, and they edited this one-volume biblical commentary. So you read a verse, and you go in here, and you look at what they might have to say about it. Not every single verse, because it's only one volume, but it's really, really helpful. Jackie has this one volume commentary and she uses it for her Bible reading and she finds it very, very helpful. Um, and, and, and it really, this is, so this is, this is your vice grips right here. And it's just one book. That's it. And it's very, very helpful. Um, your study Bible is also gonna have commentary on the verses below the text as well. So now suddenly you have two different commentaries on your text from two different sources that you can read and look at, Okay. And then the, uh, so we had WD-40, the vice grips and then the duct tape is this. I love this. Um, new Bible, this company, New Bible, also has a Bible dictionary, okay? So they have one that I have in my office. It's very good. But I also have this one. This is a one-volume Bible dictionary. It's the new illustrated Bible. This one has pictures. This is why I like this one. Okay. So I use the one with pictures, but this is um, Nelson's new illustrated Bible dictionary. And here you go again. Uh, The three guys that edited this, Ronald Youngblood, F.F. Bruce, and R.K. Harrison. I mean, you're talking like Babe Ruth, Hank Aaron, and um, I'd say Barry Bonds, but he's, well, well, you know, Harrison used steroids too when he was studying the Bible, didn't he? So anyway, just awesome. And so you can look up now, by topic in here, and read these essays. And of course, some of the topics, the essay's longer than, than others. You know, the, the essay on Paul in here is gonna be seven or eight pages, of course. Um, whereas the essay on Gyrus is gonna be maybe two sentences, okay? But this, again, really, really helpful. So there are your three, there's your vice grips, duct tape, and WD-40. And then I'm gonna give you three, um, Um, websites to go and look at and these websites are very intuitive they're easy to figure out you can click on the word in the english and it'll give you the greek word and you're going to go i don't read greek but it'll give it to you transliterated so you can actually sound it out in english but then it'll give you all the different um Uh, definitions of the word and it's again it's very very helpful it'll it'll parse it for you if it's a if it's a verb here you go a lot of people talk about Logos software Logos biblical software right how much is Logos biblical software $600 okay $600 on these three websites you can do 95% of what Logos will do for $600 and you get the websites for free okay so anyway here are the websites Oh, somebody wrote something else up there. A proper reading of Scripture should lead us all to the obvious Redemption Arcadia rocks. Yes, that's true. That's in the Bible, in case you were wondering. All right, here you go. Um, The first one is BibleGateway.com. BibleGateway.com. You can look up stuff by topic, by word. You're like... Where's that verse that has that word in it, okay? Well, you can do that, and you can narrow your search by parameters, all kinds of stuff. You got to kind of fish around and get used to using it, but it's really intuitive, really helpful. So BibleGateway.com, StepBible.org, really helpful. And then BibleHub.com. The BibleHub.com is the one that I use primarily for my um, uh, original language stuff. The Bible Gateway is the one that I use more for commentary and, and, um, and being able to find cross-references and looking at topics and looking up words and, and, and seeing how often a word uh, is used and in what context and all that stuff. Um, on my laptop computer my, uh, that I use for work here at Redemption, I have four windows open all the time. And three of the windows are these three uh, websites right here because I'm constantly on these, in and out. Okay, the fourth one is hearts, cards, you know, so yeah, that's the fourth one. Um, And then if I want to look at the news or email, I open up a fifth window. So anyway, but these three are always up along with hearts, okay, which is hearts-cardgame.com. Okay, so um, if you have that, you got, I'm telling you, that's, that's that's all you need. Okay, so start with a good study Bible. If you have nothing, start with a study Bible and these three websites. And you're going you're gonna to be in great shape right out of the gate, okay? Next thing, we would highly encourage you as you're reading to walk through these, um, these three steps. And I'm going to have David come up and talk uh, about these because he's, he's pretty um, animated about these three things. Observe, interpret, and apply.
0: We're doing that next week.
1: You want to do that next week? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we're going to do that next week. Oh, that's right. Gosh, why is this thing? There we go. Okay, so we're doing that next week?
0: You're sure? Uh,
1: okay. Or I'm just trying to buy time right now while I read some
0: stuff. Okay. Just give a round of applause for Frank's unashamedly cheesy jokes. <laughs> do we have any questions
1: so far? Let me stop and ask that. Any questions so far? Anything that's just burning. No, all right, okay. So next week I will mark that on here. Uh, David's right. I just, I remember that we did say that. So, all right. Let's talk about this thing called exegesis. Okay. This is what we do when we're. This is the science of biblical interpretation and and understanding. And you can do it too. All right. So exegesis is a conflation of two words. This is uh, a form of the Greek word for interpret. And ex means from or out of. So exegesis literally means you're going to interpret out of the original text. You're going to find your interpretation in or out of or from the text. So that's what exegesis means. So when somebody says, yeah, I'm exegeting the text, you're going, so you're reading it to find the interpretation. Thank you very much. But it's important to understand that exegesis is the interpretation within its original context. So that's just kind of the first step. It's, it's What does it say and what does it mean in its original context when it was originally written? That's what we're trying to get at, okay? So, a couple of rules of exegesis, basic rules that are really helpful. Number one, a biblical text can never mean what it never meant. A biblical text can never mean what it never meant. Have you ever run into somebody that says something like this? Well, that may have been what it meant then, but that's not what it means now. Okay, that, you've made a huge error, a horrible error, if you've done that. Or people just go so far as to say, um, for 2,000 years, the church fathers and biblical scholars have been interpreting this text this way, but now we know that they've been wrong for 2,000 years. This interpretation, this, trans, this, this is much better now, which, by the way, happens to also fit my lifestyle better.
0: You know Isn't that convenient? You, you know who's doing that right now? I give up. Who? Rob Bell. Oh yeah, Rob Bell is no that, like like two days ago he he said something to the extent of um, the church is getting close to accepting gay marriage as a legitimate practice and um, th- if they don't abandon scripture and the teachings of scripture they'll they'll never get there and did anybody grow up watching or reading Rob Bell like being influenced by him? A couple of us, yeah, yeah. He he has just like gone out in left field and it's really frustrating to watch. His primary mentor now is Oprah. Uh, which is part of the problem, but yeah, that's that's a a perfect example mm-hmm. of it. And I should find the website of the the article. I just read it like an hour before coming here, and um, it's bad news. Pass it on. No, it's my mic's on, but um, it's recording at a at a normal volume. Um, We're just trying not to blast people out. Yeah, in, for in the, the, house, people are, so. the people that are the people that are going to listen later. So yeah.
1: does that make sense? A, a biblical text can never mean what it never meant. All right, it's really important to understand. Um, here's an example. Paul could never have meant something that he had never heard of uh, in the first century. Yet we're constantly, here's the problem that we, and we do this all the time. Sometimes we don't even realize, it's not, we're not doing it even maliciously. We're just bringing our understanding of life and context to the text and overlaying that on the text rather than going to the text first to find out what it meant in its original Uh, context what did it mean when Paul wrote it if you skip that step you're in big trouble so that's really important okay
0: That's a bigger picture theological question that we, I think we should. It's a great question, Harrison, but we'll hold off on that because we're going to we'll, address more of those types of things later in the, in the right, class. Right, when we get into
1: yeah. genres and literary devices. We're yeah. going to specifically talk about but that's a really good question. Yes. Okay. Um, now, here's the next one that we'll talk about. I, I always try, have trouble spelling this. Um, this is not as well known. David's going to talk about this. Eisegesis. Yeah.
0: Um, eisege- I, re- I remember it because I pronounce it I, like me. I. Okay. Jesus. That's bad news. <laughs> um, yeah, so let's talk about isegesis. Frank, Frank talked about exegesis. That is to explain out of, to lead, literally to lead out of a text. Um, X being the, the prefix like out of. We think of exit, right? Going out. Um, Let me get this marker. Ice, E-I-S, is the word for into. So it means to to lead into something, to read into something. And that's where we take kind of a personal agenda or some uh, preconceived notion and we lay that onto the biblical text and we try to make that text say something that it doesn't actually mean. So this is the right way to do it, exegesis. And this is the wrong way to do it, eisegesis. Um, The way to avoid doing eisegesis is to study, 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 use the tools, and then have conversations with either other pastors, other friends, other people who are studying the same part of the Bible. Um, This takes place a lot of times in our redemption community groups. Um, And you also have conversations with the commentators. So Um, you can kind of check your work. And if you seem like you're forming a conclusion about the text that none of the experts are forming, that's probably a bad place to be. Um, And the the reason that these are so reliable and like the ESV study Bible is because this isn't just one guy's Bible commentary. This isn't just, and I I normally really like uh, this example I'm about to name, but this isn't just John MacArthur's study Bible. I think John MacArthur's a great, faithful Bible teacher, but um, I don't want a commentary that's just by him and him alone. But I want something that's edited by a bunch of guys because they're going to kind of check their work against each other. The same's true peer with
1: peer review. They're going to do peer yeah peer review,
0: review right? Yeah. The same's true with the ESV Study Bible. Frank mentioned the value of this. Um, I can't emphasize this enough. If you don't have this, get it like right away because it's super helpful. You should be
1: on Amazon right now on your phone ordering this. Um,
0: one of the reasons it's so helpful is because it uh, it has kind of the expert on the book of Luke, and the expert on Revelation, and the guy for um, Isaiah, and he wrote the commentary, and the intro, and all of the theological themes about that specific book, and so what that did is it created an opportunity for all of these Bible scholars from around the world to contribute to one single volume, and you don't just have one guy's perspective. You've got a lot of folks, yeah. and I, I love it for that reason, but um, back to Jesus. I want to show us an example of this, so Stephanie's pulling up a video right now, and um, no, no, this, actually, this was impromptu, this is even worse than the one we're going to watch later. Oh, um, this is not the one? No, this is a different oh, one, but it's okay. by the same guy, so we're going to watch a video briefly from a guy who is actually a pastor in Tempe, um, he's out of his mind, and, and I think he's a wicked heretic, Okay. What he's about to say... Total eisegesis freak, though. Yeah, yeah. This is the worst example of eisegesis where he takes an idea and he reads it into a biblical text. And what we're going to watch is really... I need to just warn you. It's really, really offensive. Um, He, as you can see the title, AIDS, the Judgment of God, uh, he says some really hurtful things in here that'll make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. And so please don't feel like we're endorsing this at all. This is an example of how not to read the scriptures. Um, And we're going to watch about five minutes and we're going to talk about it. And if you're
1: offended by either of these other two videos that we're going to show by this Steven Anderson guy, um, it's David uh, Massey at redemptionaz.com. Okay? So.
0: Okay, I can't take it anymore. <laughs> what do you guys think of that? Before we even address his rant about diseases, let's talk about how he eisegeted the text of Romans 1. So if you were with us when we did Romans, we started it about a year and a half ago. Um, we walked through Romans 1. And there is no denying the fact that homosexual behavior is a theme that emerges in the first chapter of Romans. But it's not the primary theme. It's not what Romans 1 is about. And so sometimes you'll hear people, when they talk about um, the, the view of the Bible on homosexual behavior, they'll just say, well, Romans 1. And I always want to go, Romans 1 isn't about homosexuality exclusively. In fact, it's just a side mention. The, the real theme of Romans 1 is, is in two parts. One, it's, it's the power of God for salvation, right? Chapter 1, verse 16, that's like the thesis statement of the whole book of Romans, and it sets this trajectory for the rest of the chapter 1, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first, and also to the non-Jew, the Gentile, or the Greek. And then from there, Paul says that those who don't believe that, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness. And the reason that that wrath is revealed is because not people engaged in homosexual behavior, but because people rejected the, the worship of the one true God. They worshiped something other than God. That's idolatry. And so the, 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 the theme of idolatry is what permeates that whole section of Romans 1, and then it's in light of that idolatry that God gives people over to sin. That's, that's, what, that's what it turns on, is this dynamic of... Um, God's judgment is something that results out of rejecting him. But this guy's premise, Stephen Anderson, was that God's, God's judgment is AIDS on homosexual behavior. And the, way, the place he gets that, the place that he reads that into the text, if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans 1. I want you to see it for yourself so that if you were faced with this, you could interact with it. This is the worst example of eisegesis I I think I've ever encountered. So it's verses 26 and 27, which was the the two verses he emphasized the most. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And then f- what he does is he says the due penalty for their error is AIDS. Okay, wh- what's the problem with that interpretation, guys? There, there wasn't AIDS at that time. Yeah, and, and it doesn't say it. So why would you say this is about AIDS when it doesn't say AIDS? Like that's just a simple rule of interpreting the Bible. A text cannot mean what it never meant. Yeah, to, to your point, sir, what's your name? Dell. Del, thanks. Yeah, Paul didn't know what AIDS was in the first century. So to say this is about AIDS is to take your preconceived notion and to force it onto the text. This is a classic eisegesis right here. He makes it worse, though, by then appealing to a text out of Deuteronomy 28, <laughs> demonstrating his further ignorance of the scriptures. And he says that th- these due penalties for their error, diseases, AIDS, comes from the promise in Deuteronomy 28 that God's going to punish people with diseases. So um, his, his first mistake was eisegesis. Well, really his first mistake was using the King James only, but... Um, <laughs> The, his second mistake was <laughs> eisegesis. His third mistake was then um, ripping Deuteronomy 28 out of its context. And we'll talk about context more in the next couple weeks. But um, he goes to Deuteronomy 28 and he reads this list of curses that are going to fall on the people who disobey the Lord. Um, what's the problem with going to Deuteronomy 28 to support your notion that these are somehow the diseases in Romans 1? Who was is, who is Deuteronomy 28 written to? Not Pharaoh. Israel, was it written to us, 21st century Americans? No, absolutely not. Now, does that mean Deuteronomy doesn't apply or we don't, we don't believe it's God's word or it's unimportant? No, 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 no none of that. Um, but there are several uh, hermeneutical steps, interpretive steps that we have to take to understand Deuteronomy first in its original context and then maybe how that applies to us now. The, the reality is the curses come if the people of God in ancient Israel don't trust that one true God and then they're not going to... One, and it's related... And he, he read it in his text. It blew me away that he didn't see this. It's, it's related to them also not inheriting the land. That has nothing to do with us, right? The land is the, 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 the plot of Israel that they were to inherit was part of this punishment and their disobedience would also result in, in some cases diseases, But he just sees, oh, well, the Lord gives diseases, so this must somehow be connected to Romans 1, and I'm just going to mash these two together. This is the worst example of biblical interpretation I've ever seen. Um, Unfortunately, it's not laughable. It's disgusting, it's rude, um, and it makes Christians look like idiots. My my hope, Frank's hope, is that you guys would read the Bible faithfully and not look like that. how
1: How many people in that service do you think actually said, Oh,
0: oh, yeah, they were going. That's that's right on. I need to be saved. (laughs) So do you you want to watch Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. No, I'm not ready for that next one yet.
0: Okay, let's how much time we got. 30 minutes. How much time you got for for your stuff? Well, let me
1: check. Where's my stuff? Oh, this is yours. Um, I was going to talk about hermeneutics and then we're going to do the examples of bad hermeneutics.
0: Oh, okay, perfect.
1: So that's next. Good. Okay? So that's Jesus. I have a story about Eisegesis too, by the way. It'll take about 30 minutes, so that's perfect. Um, no, I, I know, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Yeah, we know. Okay. Um, when I first started dating Jackie, and I was still not a Christian, but we were going to church together, we would go to church together, and then we'd come home, and I would watch football, um, which I really don't do that much anymore, but I would watch the NFL. And this was back when that guy with the colorful afro hair, uh, some of you are old enough to remember this guy, he would go to these games and he would buy these tickets and he'd hold up a sign in the stands that said what? John 3.16. John 316. And so I, I never cared before I started dating Jackie, but then I asked Jackie, I saw him in the stands at a Pittsburgh game, and I said, why does this guy hold up this sign that says John 3.16? And Jackie says, well, he's hoping that somebody will go, oh, I wonder what that is, go get their Bible And they'll read John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever would believe in Him would uh, not perish but have everlasting life and maybe they would come to know Jesus and be saved. I go, no, that's not it. That can't be it because He's at a football game. There's no way that He's thinking that He's going to tell somebody about Jesus at a football game. This has to have something to do with football. And so I went and got my Bible out and I read the, the, the verse over and over and over and over again. Finally, I realized I, 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 I came back to her and I said, I said, no, 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 no. It's not about salvation in Jesus. Here's what they're saying. Look, it says that if you have faith, it, you will never perish but have everlasting life. Here's what he's saying. He's a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. And I was dead serious. He's a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. And if he has faith in his team... They will never perish throughout the playoffs, but they will have everlasting life all the way to the Super Bowl, and they will win the Super Bowl. So he's saying, I have faith in the Pittsburgh Steelers that they can win the Super Bowl. That's what he's saying. Do you remember that, Jackie? Yeah, very clearly. Okay, now. <laughs> now, is that not the worst case of eisegesis ever? It's pretty bad. That's, eisege- that's another example of eisegesis, okay? And I just remembered that tonight, so anyway. Um, then there's hermeneutics. Now, so we have uh, interpretation from or out of the, the original text in its original context. Then we have hermeneutics, which is keeping the integrity of the original meaning then we bridge that gap to where we're living today and we're trying to apply it to our lives today. That's the art of hermeneutics, the art and the science of hermeneutics. Okay? Yes, Julie. <laughs> hermeneutics. Gosh, that we, some of these things don't work that well. Spell it for me, David. H E R E U T I C S. Hermeneutics. Okay? You, hermeneutics, okay? All right, now, uh, here's one of the things we need to remember about God. Even though his, his word is, was written over 1,500 years and the last uh, book we have was written about 95 AD, so 2,000 years ago, uh, it still applies to us today. That's the art and the science of hermeneutics. And, and here's why we know that. A timeless God would never produce dated material. So we can look at Mark and we can apply it to our lives today, the gospel of Mark. We can look at Romans and we can apply it to our lives today. We just have to be very, very careful that we're making sure that we keep the integrity of the original meaning uh, when we do that. And here's what we need to remember about all of this. Exegesis, hermeneutics, um, about um, um, uh, reading and interpreting and all of that stuff. We need to remember that you and I are flawed, sinful individuals who are trying to understand and apply a perfect text. Who's going to make the mistake, God or us? We are. So we have to, here you go, we have to approach this with great humility. And I would say, if there's anything we should get out of Steven Anderson's videos, which by the way, you can go on and watch a lot of them. He's, he videos all of this, and in his, his church is about 20 people, so... That's interesting that he's all over YouTube and he's got a church of about twenty people, but yeah. But if if, if there's one thing that he doesn't, this is the problem right here. Is is I, I would say that's that's the biggest challenge that this guy is 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 running into. Okay. Hermeneutics it's keeping the integrity of the original meaning and then bridging the gap to our context today and applying what it means to us today. So this. This is not a really simple thing to do. Anybody can do it, but it's going to take more time than it does to read a fiction novel. You're going to have to work at it a little bit. And we can never start with hermeneutics. This is, what people, this is, what, this is a big mistake that most people make is they start with hermeneutics. They just want to know, what does it mean to me today? What does it mean to me today? Well, you have to understand what it means originally. No, 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 no. Just, what, what is it? Just tell me what it means to me today, okay? Now, here are three examples of bad hermeneutics. He's going to show you one more Stephen Anderson uh, video in, in a minute. Um, but uh, here I have two. Number one, uh, so you know the story of Jesus feeds the 5,000, right? So uh, kind of recite the story. Uh, little boy, they've got five thousand people there. Jesus says, "Oh, we have got to feed these people. What are we going to do?" And the disciples are going, "Ah, send them away, you know." And he's going, "No, no, no, no. He's got compassion. He wants to feed them." And there's a little boy who's got what? He's he's got uh, lunchables. He's got five. Um, he's got five pieces of bread and two fish, right? And he comes up and he offers them to Jesus, and Jesus prays, and these are multiplied, and five thousand people eat, and then there's plenty of. Baskets left over after everybody has eaten and is filled, right? Okay. So uh, recently, we've had a scholar come along, a biblical scholar, and he's gotten great traction with this uh, interpretation. He said, okay, this is not a miracle. Nothing supernatural happened here because we're scientific, intelligent people now. Uh, So we know that this is just a story and a myth and a legend. But in fact, here's what really happened. Uh, Everybody actually had food with them under their cloaks but they were worried that they were the only ones that had any food with them and so they didn't want to tell anybody else that they had food with them under their cloaks and so everybody's hoarding their food and Jesus is going what are we going to do what are we going to do and then this little boy this wonderful example always comes from a little boy, a little child, an innocent little child who doesn't know any better. He walks up and he says, I have five loaves, five small loaves and two fish. And when he opens up his cloak and says, I have this, everybody else was moved by his selfless act to then say, Oh, well, I have some food too. And so everybody opened up and, and then they had all the food that they needed. And this interpretation has gotten traction and is being taught as truth in lots and lots of Bibles. I'm sorry, lots and lots of churches, okay? That's really bad hermeneutics. And the reason is because they're not going back to the original. They're saying, we're smart scientific people. We have to figure out how to get all this supernatural miracle stuff out of the Bible, okay? So that's the first one. The second one is Psalm 150. Let me read, um, it's a really short psalm. And since I've already opened to the psalms, I know where it is. Let me read it to you. I know that we shouldn't read Psalms prescriptively, and I'm not. It's descriptively. But if you read that Psalm and compare it to the type of music that churches have, should we be upset if there's a stringed instrument used for worship? Should we be upset if there's percussion used for worship? Yes, 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 of course. Because if you go into the Hebrew here, uh, what the Hebrew means here, all of these instruments here, it's really describing things like organs and pipes. That's what it's meaning. I've heard this I don't know how many times from people who don't like the type of worship that is in, like, in our church right now. Seriously. They say, I, I, I say, well, what, what do we do with Psalm 150 that says that we can have percussion and strings and things like zithers and lyres and all of those things? A lyre is not like a... a um, yeah, it's an instrument. Yeah, okay. So w- what do you do with that? And, and what they do is they, say, they take their preference and they inflict it on their, hum- their hermeneutic is a hermeneutic of preference. You ever heard that before? Hermeneutic of preference? Okay, that's what's going on there. Uh, David, you got, you're gonna show this other um, video now. <sighs> uh,
0: so we're gonna watch another video from that same pastor from many, many years prior and it's not, it's not as bad. Uh, it's actually really funny. Are you kidding me? This might be offensive to some people. I think it's hilarious, and it's not as offensive. It is offensive, but it's not nearly as bad as that other one we watched. David Massey at
1: RedemptionAZ.com.
0: This was shown to me my first year in Bible college, and my professor said this is how to not interpret the Bible. And so, um, yeah, Stephanie, will you you show that for us?
1: David, we got 20 minutes, and I want about 10 of that, so okay.
0: okay. All right. (laughs) <laughs>
1: all right all right okay it was a little bit funny
0: yeah so <laughs> i've seen that video a hundred times i never don't laugh at it i laugh at that every single time it never gets old um wow all right so l- let me just say this he did one thing right he asked one question what does it mean that's the question we want to ask of the biblical text when we're studying what does this mean problem is the conclusion he found was totally wrong So um, I just want to read one of the... He mentioned that it appears six times in the Old Testament. I'm going to read it once out of the ESV, which uses not the phrase piss it against the wall, but men. Um, When he began to reign, as soon as he had seated himself on his throne, he struck down all the house of Bashar. He did not leave him a single man of his relatives or his friends. All right, so he took this this Hebrew phrase... um, to describe men, which he, the King James Version does translate it more literally than the ESV or the NIV does. It literally says the, the one who pees against the wall. That is the Hebrew phrase. Um, but it's, it's meant to be a description of men. That's all it is. There's no like, here's a prescription for how men should behave. It's just a description <laughs> of men distinguished from women and God's judgment falling on the men of, of, that, of that group. And so what he does, though, is he makes... So, so the key is God's judgment falling on the men, not a characteristic
1: that makes somebody a man.
0: Bingo. Okay. Yes. That's right. Just want to um, make sure I had that right. <laughs> there were a couple of things, mistakes he made along the way. I jotted them down and they're worth talking about. So he talks about six being a significant number, and then he talks about um, you know numbers are important in the Bible, Genesis 5.5, 5, people being killed under the fifth rib. None of that's true. Okay the numbering system that we have in our bibles is not inspired by god it it's not um it's not on the same authority as god's word it's just a numbering system that's all it is like there's nothing deeply came supernatural about it hundreds of years it. after the bible yeah, was and written we'll talk about that next week of when mm-hmm. that kind of occurred but it was hundreds of years later after the scriptures were written that they wanted to be able to have reference tools to appeal to certain places within the scriptures so this idea of like oh well Genesis 5.5 is somehow about killing. It's like, no, it, it, it's just a coincidence. So anyways, that's reading way too much into it. Um, he says this, you say I'm being vile, then God's being vile. God is the one who wrote the Bible. Um, any, any thoughts on that? What would you respond? How would you respond to that? Christians believe in what we call dual authorship in the sense that God inspired the Bible, and we'll, we'll talk about this more next week, but it was worth mentioning because of how he stated it, God did not write the Bible. Like, God didn't even really dictate the Bible word for word. I think God dictated the Ten Commandments, and that's kind of where we start the formation of the Bible. But God inspired people, and not in the sense that, like, my niece was inspired to sing uh, uh, the Frozen song at the top of a mountain the other day when we went hiking. But, I mean, inspired. No, That's a different way we use inspired. I mean, inspired in the sense that they, they were supernaturally guided by the work of God to create the scriptures. And so 2 Timothy 3.16 talks about how all scriptures breathed out by God, right? Well, who wrote it? People, right? But we believe that it's people and God together. So it's a divine book as well as a human book. In the same sense that we believe about Jesus, Jesus is 100% divine, 100% man. Um, and then he says this an old fashioned Bible that tells you what being a man is all about because it's called the King James Version. <laughs> did he? Did he? Did he, did he <laughs> anybody grow up in a King James tradition? Yeah, a few of you, right? Um, the King James Bible is not an awful Bible, but it's based on some of the later manuscripts. And the, the, the better translations, and we're going to talk about this next week, but an ESV, an NIV, an NASB, they're based on more of the earlier manuscripts. And so um, saying that the King James Bible is the best is, is kind of historically foolish and academically a little shallow. Um, but the, the main point is... That was
1: charitable. He, yeah. Seriously, David, that was charitable.
0: He made a mountain out of a molehill. This one phrase, men, or as he, you know... Characterize it, males. Um, that one phrase was just meant to, to to convey that men, not to talk about what true manhood was. And so that's a classic example of how not to interpret the scriptures. Yeah. Um, do you have more? No. Okay. You not don't? on that. Oh, okay. Then I'm done. So. Okay. Yeah.
1: So uh, a couple things that I, I want to f- wrap up with because we've got about what ten minutes. Yeah, about just a little less than ten minutes. Um, and say again, I want to. I want to reiterate that um, this is an entire package. Uh, some of you are like, okay, it seemed a little fragmented. Well, if you only take this course that we're doing in in um, each of the nights and never and never see it as a total package, it will seem fragmented. All of this is building. We're building towards something. And by the time we get to that. Um, those, some of those exercises, you're going to see how all of this comes together. So I would just encourage you with that. Uh, even in the midst of that, though, I know, I know we probably hit on some things tonight that were brand new to a lot of people, um, especially this whole idea of how um, you don't need to have a, a, a library full of books to be able to, to, to do this biblical interpretation Frank, and understanding. One more,
0: actually, real quick, one more what? word about that before I forget. Mm-hmm. Um, I brought a couple of books as well for, for tools in your toolbox um these are books on hermeneutics so will you hold that one up yeah this is called grasping god's word it's a book on just how to interpret the bible and it gives you kind of step-by-step tools um i like this i use this in college i found it really helpful um this book also is really what we named this class after how to read the bible for all it's worth this is um, a phenomenal book this and is a great so easy to so easy read. to read super accessible i i um, I teach at Grand Canyon University. I teach biblical interpretation. And so this is one of my textbooks. Um, my dad had asked me for one of my textbooks for Christmas because he wanted to read it. He's not a huge reader. Um, he was a firefighter for years. And so not really, he, he's a work with his hands guy, not a reader. And so I said, this is like the book on biblical interpretation for, um, for, for lay level readers. It's very accessible, very readable, easy to understand. So if you want to get a hold of either of these, you can come write them down. You can take a picture of them. I like them a lot, and they're, they're helpful. They're different than what Frank showed. These commentaries are more like resources. So Frank doesn't read this from cover to cover, or maybe you do. It looks like you might. No. I don't know. Um, so those are resources that you use. These are more like read these, and you'll have a, a really helpful toolbox. So sorry, I just I knew I forgot to mention Okay, forget no, that's good.
1: Uh, one other thing, and this is completely uh, off topic, but I thought I'd bring it up anyway because I just got these today. Do you guys see this? This is uh, the gospel according to Mark. Um, Sean Mortenson put these together for uh, some of the congregations, and I grabbed the box. And so you guys are the first ones to have an opportunity. I know we're two, two sermons into Mark, but what this is, is this, is this handy little book that has the ESV uh, complete uh, book of Mark in here, on here, and then over here is lined notebook paper for you to take notes, Okay. See that? So uh, if you're going to go through Mark with us, this would be a really helpful little tool to bring uh, on Sunday morning uh, with you. Um, these are three dollars, but because we at Arcadia don't like to charge for uh, things if we don't uh, feel like we have to, and because it's three bucks. Um, we, we want to give these to you if you would like one. Please come up and afterwards and take. We have 25, and I can get lots more if you want one. So please come up. Yeah, leave, leave our other books. But um, um, if, if uh, the reason I mentioned that they're $3 is if you go to the other congregations, they might say, hey, why are you taking that? It's $3, okay? But we, we like to give this kind of stuff away. Last thing I want to mention, and this has to do with what we talked about tonight, is, and, and this is actually really important, and I teach this even in my Comm 100 classes at PVCC. Um, uh, not necessarily about the Bible, but I, I use the Constitution. Um, that seems to go over better in that secular environment. Um, but um, there's, a, um, there's two different schools of thought now of how to interpret ancient texts. And one of them is the traditional way. It's called historical... grammatical interpretation this is what we've been talking about all night tonight exegesis and hermeneutics another way of saying it is historical grammatical interpretation we want to go back and figure out in its original context what the author intended what the author meant when they originally wrote this um, uh, this text Historically and grammatically, we have to look at the words and and the syntax and the parsing and all of that stuff in its historical original context. Historical grammatical interpretation, okay? Now, in the 1970s, along came a guy named Stanley Fish, who was a literature, uh, a full professor of literature at Johns Hopkins University. Has anybody ever heard of Stanley Fish? Anybody in here ever heard of Stanley Fish? Okay. So um, he became very famous over the years. He had a nice 30 or 40 year career at Johns Hopkins University teaching literature there. Uh, He became very famous uh, for something that he developed called, I wish I had that other marker because it's so much darker. Anyway, called Reader Response Theory. Has anybody ever heard of reader response theory, and what it is? What it what it is? Okay. So Fish was. Uh, I've read all of his articles that he wrote in the 70s and 80s as he developed this. He didn't use the term reader response theory as as a as a as a title of his theory for at least 10 years, but he kept talking about how um, a text a text has no authority from the author it has no authorial intent because there's no way that it's possible that you and I can go back in time and understand what somebody meant when they originally wrote something you can even go to the author if he's still alive and talk to him and you still can't really even get to what he so let's just forget about what uh, trying to figure out what they meant when they originally wrote it there is no such thing as that he used to say this all the time there's no text in my class there's only the reader And so reader response theory is you interpret the text based on what it means to you. Now that's a really basic and and sort of um, deconstructed view of what it is. I could talk to you about interpretive communities and all these other things, but essentially that's what it is. Read the text and what it means to you, that's what it means. Okay, when you read an author, when you read Shakespeare, don't think about what Shakespeare was thinking when he wrote it. Find your voice and think about what you're thinking as you read it. That's what it means to you. And now we have all over the place. We even have seminaries teaching that this is a good way to now interpret the Bible. Okay, now, lest you think that this isn't really that important other than maybe to uh, biblical interpretation, uh, let me tell you something. It's really, really important. What what, what do we do every four years politically? We elect a new president. What's one of the jobs of uh, what's one of the things that a, a president might get to do if they've been elected to either four or eight years? They might get to do this depending on somebody dying or retiring. Appoint a Supreme Court justice or two. Correct. What is the job of the Supreme Court? To interpret the Constitution in light of case law that's brought to them. Right. Okay. now there are a lot of you've heard of people who vote. um, They're one issue voters. Right. What's what's the candidate's stance on abortion? That's what I'm going to vote for. What's the candidate's uh, stance on gun control? I'm going to Second Amendment. I'm going to vote for that. What's the candidate's uh, stance on the type of Supreme Court justices they're going to appoint? A lot of people uh, vote based on that. Okay. why is this important? Because generally speaking, um, Democratic presidents appoint Supreme Court justices that interpret the Constitution based on this: the Constitution is a living, fluid document. We can never really know what the original authors intended by it. Instead, we have to interpret it based on wh- what we know today in our context. That's the only way we can interpret the Constitution. Or you have pe- th- that would be like Ginsburg and Breyer, okay? Or you have people uh, like, and and in the political world they call this by a different name anybody know that name if you interpret this way the Constitution this way you're a strict constructionist have you heard that term you're a strict constructionist if you interpret it this way okay so this would be Clarence Thomas and Anthony I can never say his last name Scalia. scuts yeah the Anthony s okay so that would be them all right and again these are these are generalizations but that's what's happening And the point I want to make here is that this is also going on in the world of biblical interpretation. And you have to be aware of this when somebody comes along and says, oh, the Bible doesn't mean that. I don't know what you're talking about. Here's what it means to me. And, 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 and I'm going to be very careful here that I don't want to, I, I don't want to offend anybody, but I've got to mention this. It's one of the reasons why I've never been really excited by those Bible studies where people, we're just going to get together and talk about what the Bible means, what this passage means to me. Some people describe that as shared ignorance. Okay? So I would, I would prefer going to a Bible study where people are actually preparing and trying to understand what it meant in its original context. So, if there was one overarching theme that we are trying to get through to you tonight, it's this. We need to understand what the Bible means in its original context, and that's how we should begin to approach it and read it. Now, Starting next week, we'll, st- we'll, talk to, to, we'll start talking to you about breaking down these barriers of intimidation on various genres. How do you read various genres? How do you understand historical context? We'll start doing those things, and this is going to start to flow into making a lot, of, a lot more sense to you now. The big thing we wanted to get across today was the Bi- tonight, the, the Bible can never mean what it never meant And we want to make sure that we approach the Bible to understand it in its original form and its original context. What did God mean when he when this originally was written down? Okay, anything you want to add before we go? Okay, we'll be back here next week. And next week we're having what to eat, Stephanie? Or do she hasn't decided yet? It's either going to be Chick fil A sub sandwiches or Manuel's. That's essentially our lineup, right? Okay, all right. Let me pray. God, thanks a lot for um, all that you do for us. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your word and its truth and we pray that we'd be able to come to it humbly and that we would uh, uh, approach it um, in such a way that we would ask uh, what it means in its original context and what you meant when it was first written down. And from there, we can begin to apply it to our lives. Help us to be able to do that. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, have a great night. We'll see you next week or Sunday.